Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And with Valentine's Day upon us, our theme this week is passion. Over the next hour, we'll bring you local tales of love. I realize how enjoyable it is to love him for me and for my children. And why, you know, did did I not at least try to get a phone number or, or, or something? She was beautiful and she was asking me to dinner. And that was that was more than enough. But we'll look at other kinds of passion, too. Passion for music, passion for medicine, and passion for breaking some major glass ceilings as a black female reporter in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. She paraphrases Frederick Douglass when she says, don't judge me by the heights that I achieved, but by the depths from which I rose. We'll also debut a new series this week, what we're calling Clips, as we visit a barber with a longtime passion for community. I can pretty much depend on everyone in this room somehow, some way. And it's not a dependency of need. It's a dependency of love. But we'll kick things off today with a love story, one that was quite a few years in the making. Larry Bell and Michelle Dompierre met relatively later in life and decided to take things a little bit slowly before getting married. They shared their story with Hans Anderson. Well, my name is Larry Bell. I'm Michelle Dompierre. Met up with an old girlfriend of mine who I just knew I would never have a chance of getting back with. But for some reason, she befriended me and we started palling around. One day we went to uh, lunch with some folks, some friends of hers. She invited me along, and uh, I got introduced to the people around the table and, uh, and, and Michelle. Would you believe I was introduced to Larry by his ex-girlfriend, one of his ex-girlfriends. But I noticed her out the corner of my eye, and um, I thought about it, and I could tell by the way that she was moving that she had spotted me. Larry has a dimple in the middle of his chin, and he has very kind eyes, and he has a kind manner. So I was intrigued. And my inner clock said, mm-hmm. here's one. But then this new kind of consciousness that I was trying to work with and principles and stuff would not let me uh, try to lay it on her, so to speak. We didn't speak much at that first meeting. I conducted myself like a gentleman, said so long to everybody, and for the next three weeks, I could hardly sleep. Thinking about Michelle and why, you know, did... Did I not at least try to get a phone number? And then, a few weeks down the road, I saw him again. Got wide-eyed, you know, and hands extended to each other and all this kind of a stuff. It was apparent that we were feeling the same thing. I saw some sparkle in his eyes, and I guess I was communicating sparkles as well. But I went to her and said, you cannot leave here without giving me your phone number or some kind of way to get in touch with you. I can't stand it. <laughs> and uh, 
began a journey of uh, strolls. Great and wonderful walks. Keeping a safe distance <laughs> at the beginning, I was interested in knowing who he was. We were still getting, you know, to know each other. I was not hot to trot. <laughs> Larry and I used to have a pastime. I would cook, and he would read to me as I cooked. He would read out loud. And at that time, we were reading Siddhartha. So I'm sitting in this little chair reading a Siddhartha. And I was stirring the pot with a beautiful wooden spoon, and he was reading to me, and he put his book on his lap, and he said, what are we going to do with this relationship? So she stopped and, and turned around. I said, huh. Came over to the chair and on bended knee proposed. And I said, Larry, will you be my fiancé? And the spoon was up in my hand. He said, yes, yes, yes. So I said, let's get a dictionary and look up the word fiancé and see exactly what it means, you know. He ran upstairs to get the dictionary. And it, it came out to, you know, intention to marry, you know, to be married and all that kind of stuff. So that was close enough for me. We took it slowly, you know. The whole process was slow. That was Michelle Dompierre and Larry Bell speaking with Metro Connections' Hans Anderson. Our next story on today's passion show isn't so much about the lovey-dovey kind of passion, but more so that feeling you get when you focus your mind on something and then throw your entire heart and soul into pursuing it. In this case, the pursuit is journalism, and the pursuer was a major pioneer in that field. Alice Dunnigan was the first African-American woman to break into the National Press Corps in Washington, D.C., she was born in rural, segregated Kentucky in 1906, but by the time she died in 1983, she had more than 50 journalism awards to her name. She paraphrases Frederick Douglass when she says, don't judge me by the heights that I achieved, but by the depths from which I rose. Carol McCabe Booker has just released a newly edited version of Alice's 1974 autobiography. The new edition is called Alone Atop the Hill, the autobiography of Alice Dunnigan, pioneer of the national black press. She was, for example, the first black female reporter accredited to the House and Senate press galleries. She was the first accredited to the Supreme Court and to the State Department press corps. And she was the first black woman accredited to the White House. If you go on the JFK Library website, his news conferences are there. And the first one in January of 1961, eight minutes into it, you'll hear her. She's the first woman you recognized. And she's got this lovely Kentucky drawl. Yes, ma'am. There's no administration plan to take any steps to solve the problems at Fayette County, Tennessee, where tenants farmers have been evicted from their homes because they voted last November and must now live in tents. We are uh, 
the Congress, of course, I recently visited Carol Booker, who lives on Capitol Hill with a couple of dogs, a couple of birds, and her husband, veteran journalist Simeon Booker. Simeon was the Washington bureau chief of Ebony and Jet magazines for more than half a century. Carol says her inspiration for editing and re-releasing Alice Dunnigan's autobiography came in 2013, when the National Association of Black Journalists posthumously inducted Alice into its Hall of Fame. Another nominee that night was Carol's husband, Simeon. It was mentioned that his book was readily available if you swiped the program with your smartphone. You could order it right there in the auditorium. And when mention was made of Alice Dunnigan's book, I remembered having met her at one of the famous jet office parties at Christmas time. But I had never read the book. Well, I was astounded to find that it was very, very difficult to find. A few used booksellers were offering it on the Internet for hundreds of dollars. And a few libraries, which I'm lucky enough to live near, had it in the reference sections. So I decided to read it at the Library of Congress. And it was a very thick book, 670 pages. And I thought that people today, particularly women today, particularly young women, perhaps even particularly young black women, should have this book available, should have her story available, because it's riveting, it's compelling, it's fascinating, and above all, I guess, it's inspiring. You mentioned all of these firsts that Alice Dunnigan achieved. They didn't come easy, though. Can you talk about some of the resistance that she encountered, some of the obstacles she had to hurdle over? Alice had a way of summing it up. She said, being a pioneer was no bed of roses. She ran into obstacles, as she reports, more on the basis of her gender than on the basis of her her race. When she approached her boss by long-distance telephone, Claude Barnett, the founder and head of Associated Negro Press in Chicago, and told him she had been invited by the White House to accompany President Truman on an official 9,000-mile whistle-stop tour, he told her this was not the kind of trip a woman takes. (laughs) He told her it wasn't worth the money to him. And the White House had told each of the reporters interested in going that it would be $1,000 for their expenses. And Alice told him, well, as long as you consent, I'm going to go even if I have to pay for it. Obviously, she needed his consent because she needed those credentials. So Alice finally got $500 on a personal loan because the head of the NAACP here in Washington vouched for her. That was the only way she could get the loan because she had no collateral. So with that and $250 in personal savings, she to get on the trip. And the two male, black male reporters were not even helpful to her. They ignored her the whole time. So it was a struggle every inch of the way. And one of Alice's favorite spirituals that she kind of cites as the underlying theme of her life was keep by inching along. <laughs> and that's what she did. She just kept inching along. There's a letter that you quote in the book from 1948. And she wrote, If I can so live to inspire others to strive to achieve, I will not have lived my life in vain. Would you say she achieved her mission? Partly. She did inspire others. Ethel Payne 
was a black woman reporter who came to Washington in late 1953, started covering the White House in 1954. And Alice took her under her wing and mentored her, and they were friends for the rest of Alice's life. So there was at least one person who then went on to make quite a mark in civil rights reporting for the Chicago Defender. And she had the benefit of having somebody show her the ropes, which is something that Alice certainly didn't have. Alice had to learn everything the hard way. But I think that the fact that her book was lost all this time and her contribution forgotten does indicate that she hasn't as yet fulfilled her wish to be an inspiration to young women. And that's what I hope this new edition of her autobiography will accomplish. The young women will pick it up and read it and say, oh my God, she did all this. I can do it. I can get out there and I can achieve my goals. And it may not be today or tomorrow, but I just have to keep inching along. That was Carol McCabe Booker, editor of Alone Atop the Hill, the autobiography of Alice Dunnigan, pioneer of the national black press. Carol will be talking about and signing copies of the new book on February 24th at the Naval Lodge Hall on Capitol Hill. You can find more information on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break... A granny who knows how to play that funky music in D.C. I love the people, and they seem to love us, so that's the way we play. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. With Valentine's Day weekend upon us, today our theme is passion. So throughout this hour, we're sprinkling several stories of love, including this next one, about a couple who might never have gotten together if not for a case of mistaken identity. It all started on their very first day as college students at George Washington University. Tara Boyle brings us this audio postcard. My name is Allison Solov. I am 29 years old. I'm Adam Solov. I'm 28. The first day of college, I met a very attractive-looking Eastern European man on my hall. He played the electric bass, he stunt-biked for fun, and he spent the summers in Wyoming riding horses. Without a shirt. Without a shirt. <laughs> um... Uh, That evening, I saw a tall, attractive-looking man on the street and asked him to go to dinner, thinking he was the guy from my dorm. When Allison asked me to dinner, I had just come out of the dorm, and it was my very first day at college, and I had met basically no one, and I was planning to go walk the streets and attempt to find somewhere to eat dinner alone. 
And so when she asked me to dinner, my first thought was, boy, you know, what they say about college girls really is true. <laughs> I'm from the Deep South, and I would never invite a man I hadn't met out to dinner. It took me, I think, until we were sitting down eating dinner, talking about the other people in the dorm, that I realized that she thought that I was one of them. And I, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> But she was beautiful, and she was asking me to dinner, and that was that was more than enough. <laughs> well, we dated for six years, so we had already decided to get engaged, and I had planned a trip to visit her over Christmas break, but. To add just a small amount of surprise, I actually told her the wrong date and flew out a day early. And her first reaction is, "You're not here until tomorrow." <laughs> and then I pulled out the ring, and she was suitably surprised, and the family was there to witness it. It was a very nice day. Before Adam and I even knew we were going to get married, we knew that if we did, we wanted, we hoped to have a son, and to name him Thomas. After he was born, I developed postpartum depression, and ended up in the hospital. It was actually very relieving to find out that it wasn't normal, and I just thought, this thing we're going through must be just what everyone does. Adam was incredibly supportive, and I think it profoundly changed our relationship to know that we could provide that kind of help to each other. Being a parent with Adam has helped me value him in different ways. I love to see the way my children love him. It's one of my favorite things in the world: the way my daughter lights up when he walks into the room. And I realize how enjoyable it is to love him for me and for my children. This story was produced by Metro Connections' Tara Boyle and came to us through the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for us to share story ideas with you and for you to share your expertise with us. If you'd like to join the network, head online to metroconnection.org/pin. Earlier in the hour, we heard about the life and career of Alice Dunnigan, a Kentucky native who became the first Black female reporter accredited to the House, Senate, Supreme Court, and White House press corps. While the man we'll hear from next is every bit as passionate about what he does for a living, for nearly two decades now, Dwayne Johnson has been working in the Brookland neighborhood of Northeast Washington at the corner of Twelfth and Girard as the owner of M and S Barber Services. 
And that's where we're going today as we debut Clips, our ongoing exploration of D.C.'s barbershops in partnership with Elevation D.C., a weekly online magazine about what's next for the city. We recently spoke with Duane, who's facing an uncertain future now that a developer has bought the building that houses M&S and plans to convert it to condos. My name is Duane Johnson. M&S Barber Services opened up uh, September 16th. 1995. M&S Barber Services are the um, initials of my parents, Mr. Medell Ford, M-E-D-E-L-L, and my mother's nickname, Miss Sweecy, S-W-E-E-T-S-Y. We uh, opened up, um, like I said, it was a Tuesday, right about 11.15, we signed a lease, sitting right in the middle of the floor, uh, two uh, card table chairs and a box. We hadn't even went and bought uh, barber chairs yet, you know, but we knew it was going to be a barbershop. And we knew it was going to probably be one of the best barbershops in the city, too. My clients are professional people, honest people, beautiful people, godly people, average people. We, we look at it like once you come through that door, you're not even a client no more. We consider ourselves family. We family, y'all. See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? We family. I mean, I, I met my wife in this barbershop. She called me on the phone because her son said he didn't want to go to the old barbershop. And um, I'm like, bring him. And that's been six years. That's been six years. And now we, we've been married a year. So it, it, it's a family. A lot of these people, of course, they come back for the barbershop. But then it's the other things that we have going on in here. I mean, it's always something going on. And it's always something positive going on in here, too. We um, partnership with uh, Medstock. That's our health, and uh, we conduct uh, pressure readings and diabetes screenings every uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We uh, reach out to over 1,500 Afro-American men, and we have an accurate roster and listen that we stay in daily contact with and provide these type of services for. We started um, having a... A weekly cookout every Saturday, free cookout, a grill back there. As a matter of fact, the only reason we're out, not out there today because of the temperature, you know, because of the temperature. Got a lot of kids in this community, you know, and a lot of kids, we don't want to classify them as less fortunate, but they kind of look forward to a meal. And something as simple as a hot dog or a hamburger make a big difference. A pack of hot dogs only costs us a dollar. And we feed eight to ten people. So it just started out as like um, a give back. And then it became, Mr. Dwayne, what's on the grill? Mr. Dwayne, what's on the grill? So then it just became um, a ritual. Due to the change of the demographics in um, Brookline and the redevelopment, the building was sold. The building was sold um, to a developer who wants to come in and um, redevelop. And um, at first it was it was a bummer, you know, but we looking at it now as it's time for us to move on and do some bigger things and bring bring what we did or what we've done here for the last 19 years to another community for another 19 years. Don't want to leave, don't want to go, but um, just the impact that we made in this Brookland community over the last 19 years demonstrating shows, right, where we are right now. Anywhere between 60 to 70 people a day come through this barbershop. 30 of them might be coming to get haircuts. 10 of them might be coming just to say hi. 
20 of them might be coming just to see what's for lunch. Eight of them might be coming to know why the grill ain't outside. But the bulk of them come in because it's like, this your living room, you know? I'm going to see my cousin around the barbershop. And it, it is a great, 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 great entity to add to a community, you know? So it's a beautiful thing. It's been great. It's been great. That was Dwayne Johnson, owner of M&S Barber Services in Brookland. And this just in, Dwayne's announced he's found a new home for M&S in Brookland. It'll be near Rhode Island Avenue and 22nd Street Northeast, so stay tuned. Here on Metro Connection, we'll be visiting more D.C. barbershops in the coming months. At last count, there were 112 licensed shops in the city. So if you have one you'd like to nominate, email us at metro at wamu.org or send a tweet to at WAMU Metro. In the meantime, we have some beautiful photos of Dwayne Johnson at work. We also have a link to Elevation D.C.'s write-up of M&S. It's all on our website, metroconnection.org. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. But your haircut is as short as mine. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. But your haircut is as short as mine. down 12th Street from the current location of M&S, turn right on Rhode Island Avenue, and in less than two miles, you'll reach the Showtime Lounge in Northeast D.C. It's known as kind of a hipsterish dive bar, so it's not exactly the kind of place you'd expect to see a fusion funk band led by a white-haired octogenarian. Lauren Ober introduces us to Granny's Ball of Odds. Now, Sundays aren't usually great bar nights, but on this night and every Sunday, the Showtime bar has a special draw. And it's not the $3 cans of Natty Bow. It's Granny. Granny is Alice Donahue, the 82-year-old keyboard player of Granny's Ball of Odds, or Granny and the Boys, as they're called at the bar. I let bass player Roberto Santos explain the band. We like to call ourselves old school band. Yeah. Emphasy on the old. Why, how old are you? I'm the baby of the bunch now. I'm 58. And because this is radio and you can't see them, we should note that Santos and the other men in the band are black. Donahue is white. Not exactly your average bar house band. Richard Lynch, the band's drummer, knows that Granny is an oddity. A black couple walked up to her, and uh, the wife said, Do you really play with them black boys? And they were black. She was just puzzled. She'd not seen this before. Visually, it's a little jarring. With her head of loose white curls, long skirt, and Velcro sneakers, Granny, well, looks like a grandma. You half expect Donahue to invite you over to her house for some milk and cookies after the show. She has definitely gotten some confused looks from people in the bar. Some of them will come up at the bar and watch my hands and look at my shorthand music to make sure I'm really playing that, or am I just a prop? It's sitting there pretending, you know. Why would somebody think that you're pretending? You'd be surprised because we are a strange band. I'm almost like, I shouldn't say it this way, but I'm almost like a gimmick. The makeup of the band might seem gimmicky, but its origin story couldn't be more organic. 
Donahue began playing the piano when she was three, but somewhere along the line, she left the keys behind. You know, sometimes when you're married, you sort of have this split role in this, not too much time for being Alice. You're the wife and the mother and everything else, but you sort of forget yourself along the road. In 1996, her husband of nearly 50 years died. A year later, Donahue enrolled in University of Maryland's continuing ed program for seniors to study music. That's how she met Richard Lynch, who was working at the Roy Rogers on campus. I saw her sitting in the Roy Rogers, and I just wanted to be funny and mess with her, and I did. Just walk up behind her, never seen her before. She was reading a music book, and uh, I just snatched the book out of her hand and just said, thank you. (laughs) Wait, what? That's crazy. And I had just paid a good $40 for that music book because college books are expensive. But Lynch's adolescent approach worked. Soon he convinced his new squeeze to manage his band. Donahue agreed. Then, one night, the band needed a fill-in keyboardist. Richard just said, well, you're going to have to play the concert. So I did. I did pretty good. A couple of the musicians, you know, said, well, she held her own, (laughs) which is, I guess, good. So... That's how I started. Donahue's been with the band ever since. And unlike many band romances before them that flamed out, Donahue and Lynch are still together. Lynch says Granny is the reason he still plays music. I'm playing music because of her. If I wasn't playing with her, I wouldn't be playing music any longer. I'd still play music, but I wouldn't be playing in any bands. Lynch says he's had a chance to make it big in music. Back in the day, he played in a local band called Rare Funk Ghetto, which opened for all the greats, Aretha Franklin, Roberta Flack, and Sly and the Family Stone, to name a few. He had some opportunities to cash in, but he didn't take them. And the experience left him feeling used up. But Donahue reinvigorated him. Musically, we're just as close, and spiritually, we're... I guess that's the main thing. It's the spiritual thing. It's not the music. It's the spiritual, her attitude, her character and personality. Despite the 20-year age difference, the pair inspires each other. And the band is its own kind of inspiration. In the two years they've been playing Sunday nights at Showtime, they've gained a steady following. People might come out for Granny, but they stay for the boys. I'm Lauren Ober. All right, you've heard Granny tickling those ivories. Now you can see it, too. We have a video on our website, metroconnection.org. And now it's time to knock on some doors with our ongoing journey around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit the Hunter's Woods neighborhood of Reston, Virginia, and Old Town Laurel in Maryland. My name is Joanne Norton. I live in the Hunter's Woods section of Reston, Virginia. I have lived here in this place for 20 years. Hunter's Woods is located south of the Dulles Access Road, west of Soapstone Parkway, above Lawyers Road in Reston. I read about Reston in Women's Day in 1975. It was a planned community. It had many advantages that I wanted to take part of. It had all income levels, it had a sense of community, and it was open to everyone. Some people have felt that Hunterswood Plaza is in the surrounding area has maybe a little bit of crime, but that hasn't been my perception in the past 20 years. 
I feel very safe walking here. And then the new design of the plaza really makes it seem more welcoming to everyone. Outside my window, I have woods. I can go out my door, go on the trails, and walk to most anywhere in Reston. Depends on how much energy I have. My name is Jana Levin. I live in Old Town Laurel, Maryland. I've lived in Old Town Laurel for about 20 years now. Old Town Laurel is located halfway between Baltimore and Washington. Back when George Washington was president, he used it as a stagecoach stop because it was exactly halfway. The history of Old Town Laurel dates back to before its incorporation in the 1800s. We were a mill town. We had a mill. We're right on the Patuxent River, and it was a thriving mill. That's how the town developed, as factory towns do. The mill comes first, then the houses, then the main street, then the churches, and then the schools. And in the 1800s, it was incorporated into its own city. We also have a beautiful riverfront where, you know, you can run, you can walk, you can take your kids to play, you can take the dog to walk, and you wave and you know everybody. You feel, you feel safe there. I live in such a beautiful, sweet, nice town that doesn't cost me a fortune to live in. I have a historic home right on the main street where I walk out on my front porch and drink coffee and watch all of the local color walk by. I, I don't, I can't imagine what would ever get me to move. We heard from Jana Levin in Old Town Laurel and Joanne Norton in Hunter's Woods. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute. My last name's Edwardson. So when she was, her maiden name is French. So we were just, you know, I think I was in the aisle. She was in the middle seat. Finding love while flying the friendly skies. It's coming your way as our passion edition of Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're heating things up with a show about passion. We'll kick off this segment with another story of romantic passion, one that began about 35,000 feet up in the air. Hans Anderson brings us the story of Matt and Justina Edwardson. My name's Justina Edwardson. I'm a baker, and I live in Tacoma Park. Hi, my name's Matthew Edwardson. I work in uh, development on environment and natural resource, and I live in Tacoma Park as well. July 2000, we were going into the Peace Corps. On the airplane, the tickets were alphabetical. My last name's Edwardson. So when she was, her maiden name is French. So we were just, you know, I think I was in the aisle, she was in the middle seat. So we were on the plane flying over, got to know each other quite well. We had a couple drinks. <laughs> it was Air Afrique before they stopped uh, flying. The stewardesses were very generous to all of us in terms of, in terms of uh, the alcohol beverage cart. So we got to Guinea and became very close friends. 
we never made it to each other's respective sites, but we did see each other at various um, functions. He would write letters to me and send me pictures. It's kind of hard to imagine, but this is like pre-cell phone. This is pre-everything. So this was, you want to talk with someone, you write a letter and you, you know, you put like, you know, very important on there. And you, it was always important to have a stamp because that would help it get there quicker. And then you would give it to the, the taxi guy. And then the taxi guy would give it to another taxi guy in another town. And then it would just keep going town to town to town. And then someone would eventually get the letter maybe a month later. <laughs> and so we would kind of correspond that way. But we were just friends. We weren't boyfriend and girlfriend or anything. When we left the Peace Corps, I ended up moving to Seattle in Asia. I lived here and then I was overseas a little bit, but I was, you know, working in development in Washington. A couple of years apart where we still communicated. And I was in Korea and you were living in... I was in Uganda. Uganda. And I got a, a cassette in the mail of a song that you'd found in the market that was called Justina. And yeah. they just sang Justina, Justina, Justina <laughs> over and over yeah. and over again. <laughs> I remember finding that cassette tape in some little yeah, market in you know outside of Kampala. I was like, this is because Justina is not a name you hear often. So to like see it on a cassette in a little market shop in, in Kampala outside of Kampala was pretty fun. Yeah. The whole time of Peace Corps and the whole time of living in Asia, I was dating another Peace Corps volunteer, and then. I broke up with him when I left and moved to Washington, D.C. <laughs> it was clear when Justina moved back that she moved back here to Washington so that she could test the waters. And I was very happy to, to be a, a participant in that process. So it was it was a lot of fun. I was excited that Justina decided to take the... <laughs> give you a chance. Give me a chance, <laughs> right. Right, give me a chance, and and the chance has been wonderful. And here we are, (laughs) three beautiful children, cats and dogs, and a house, and (laughs) Tacoma Park, and, you know, loving our life. That was Matt and Justina Edwardson sharing their tale of love with our own Hans Anderson. story is about a passion for a certain sport, one that's been a staple on the West Coast for years. But wouldn't you know it, some of its reigning national champions live, work, and practice right here in Washington. The sport we're talking about is ultimate frisbee. And Lauren Landau met up with a few members of the reigning women's division team, Washington, D.C. scandal, during their off-season. Allison Maddox snatches a white disc from the air. The 29-year-old Virginia resident looks for an opening and tosses the frisbee to a teammate. So as a defensive handler, I'm usually on the defensive line, which is the line that's pulling and then playing defense. And as a handler, I'm sort of the one that's dealing the disc, kind of kind of like a quarterback, I guess. Allison has been playing ultimate since she was an undergrad at UC Santa Barbara. She planned to give the sport up after graduation, but couldn't. 
Five years ago, she joined Scandal, a women's ultimate frisbee team here in D.C. that's won two national championships. What's so great about the women's division that I really like is that everyone's just pushing the game to the next level there. And it's just so fun to be able to play with a whole bunch of other really strong, really athletic, really smart women and have that community. Allison says people would be surprised by how much time and money Scandal's members put into this. In season, we practice for three to four hours on Saturday and three to four hours on Sunday. And then during the week, we'll get together in pods and we'll do um, just disc work and also agility and then also the physical component, which is like working on speed and endurance. I asked Allison's teammate, Alicia White, to explain how Ultimate works. There's a lot more to the sport than throwing and catching frisbees. It basically looks like a football field, and it combines components of like football, soccer, and basketball. Play a little bit like football, where you have a defender on you and you're making cuts to try and get open, but it is a non-contact sport, so there's no tackling, and once you catch the frisbee, you have to stop, and then you advance it up the field to the end zone by passing it to your teammates. Alicia also started playing in college, then moved to San Francisco, where she played for former national championship team, Fury. She says Ultimate provides a great release. I think a lot of us are very hardworking professionals or students. For example, I'm in medical school right now. It just provides that balance of like having friends and running around, exercise, physical activity, the competition that we lack and kind of other aspects of our life. Another addition came to Scandal with a lot of prior experience. Coach Alex Dutchie-Gaskier has been playing Ultimate for more than 20 years. Up in Boston, he played for then-world champion club team Death or Glory, then moved to San Francisco, where he captained and coached a championship team called Revolver. After moving to D.C., the 37-year-old linked up with Scandal. My first year as coach, the team went from uh, semifinals to winning nationals in a, in a fantastic tournament where we beat uh, heavy favorites, Seattle in semis, and then six-time defending champions, Fury from San Francisco in finals in a game that was really about the hard work and the, the team spirit that the team had been building over the whole course of the year. Scandal co-captain Sandy Jorgensen says all of her friends play Ultimate. She jokes that she'd have nothing left if she stopped. It's the place that I get to be competitive and athletic and feel powerful and confident, which I don't always at work or in, when I was in school. And uh, it's just a, an amazing community of both women and, and men in the larger community. Today, the teammates are playing with some of those men. It's the off-season, so they're on the polo field by the MLK Memorial playing Goldtimate, a sort of half-court version of Ultimate. Jonathan Neely is a captain of Truck Stop, which doesn't have two national titles under its belt like Scandal does, but Jonathan says the guys are working to follow the ladies' lead. Yeah, there's, there's both respect and excitement and a little bit of, uh, of envy, definitely. He's been playing Ultimate since he was a teenager. It was a varsity sport at his high school in Seattle. Jonathan says Frisbee is thriving in D.C., but the 9-to-5 culture presents a challenge. Typically, the people who live here work pretty demanding jobs, and a lot of the ultimate cities that are more destination cities, I think, have economies and whatnot that support people who do want to kind of work to play ultimate rather than the other way around. Allison Maddox says the broader public doesn't pay much attention to ultimate, but the people who play take the sport very seriously and others are catching on to that. The past two years, the national championships have been broadcast on ESPN3. And in the men's division, going pro is starting to become a real option. Allison says it's an interesting time for the growth of the sport, and she's excited to see where it goes. I'm Lauren Landau. 
see a video of Scandal clobbering Boston's Brute Squad during this year's Women's National Semifinals, visit our website, metroconnection.org. My little frisbee, please return to me. Bark back up my tree and ring my bell. If you are busy, if you are busy, just bark back. It's time now for our monthly look at D.C.'s literary world. We call it Bookend. This time around, Jonathan Wilson sits down with Nadia Hashimi, author of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. Hashimi is the child of Afghan immigrants, and her first novel explores how, for generations, many Afghan girls have been raised as boys, so they can access education and freedoms they wouldn't have otherwise. Hashimi hasn't had to face those problems. She was born in the U.S., and when she's not writing, she works as a pediatrician. She met up with Jonathan in a rather unusual writing spot to talk about following her passion and finding balance between two seemingly different careers. This isn't your typical writer's studio, but this is my latest home away from home. So right now we're sitting in my husband's uh, surgical office. This is called uh, Brain and Spine, Center for Brain and Spine, and he's a neurosurgeon. All right. So you also are a doctor, right, by training? I am. I'm a pediatrician, which has probably enabled me to be a little bit more helpful in managing his office than, um, than otherwise. But it's been, a, uh, it's been interesting kind of transitioning from my pediatrician life to writing life. Let's talk about your, I guess, life as a writer. I'm wondering, you know, growing up, Again, uh, being educated as a doctor is no joke. I mean, you really have to commit yourself to that. Um, But did you always have this desire to write fiction or just write in general? How far back does that go? So interestingly, I went back home a couple of weeks ago and was digging through my old scrapbooks from school. And my parents have kept every tiny little report card and every little success note that I got. And when I went back, I saw that it, it looks like there really was a desire to write, but I wonder if every child has that, where you know, you're first starting to get into books and you're first falling in love with reading. As I went through the rest of my schooling, I sort of fell into these more sciences, and you know, a physician, a career as a physician was a natural fit for me because I liked working with people, children specifically, and because I really enjoyed the sciences. Um, but Once we sort of settled down into a normal life and we'd finished schooling, um, it was really my husband's encouragement seeing me read books and ignore him when we were on vacation. He said, you know what, I think you really, really want to do this. You've got a passion that's in there and you really should follow it. And he's, like I said, he's a big believer in chasing down your dreams. So how long did it take you to really kind of craft a novel? Did you already have this story in mind? And what was your kind of work ethic like as a writer as compared to, you know, what you had to do going through medical school? So what was interesting was that I was expecting uh, during the time that I was writing the book, and it was nine months. And the good thing about expecting is that you have a really solid deadline and (laughs) due date in front of you. And so I really needed to finish this book before... I was going to bring home a new baby who would probably not let me do very much or be very productive at any hour or day. Um, and so it was about nine months from start to finish. And like I said, when I sat down and decided I do want to write, the next question was, what should I write about? And I had to write about what was most compelling to me, which was the plight of Afghan girls. Um, and so that nine months was really, you know, that labor of love of kind of pouring it out. And I had to, as a writer, set goals for myself to accomplish a certain amount of, you know, words per day to kind of incrementally 
build the story up. And having that that due date really helped to tell me, hurry up, finish. You got to get it out there. So now that you're finished with this novel, um, it's gotten some great reviews and you had success. Um, do you feel like, okay, I got that story out, I'm done? Or do you feel like you're ready for the next novel? And I know you obviously have this other career as a doctor. So, so what happens? I, I have a second book coming out this July, uh, and that's called When the Moon is Low, which is the story of an Afghan family living as refugees and kind of looking for a better tomorrow and, and getting absorbed into the underground world of the undocumented in Europe. For me, once I've started writing, it's sort of become this thing that I really can't put away. And it's it's sort of taken priority at this time because it's it's a, it's truly a passion. And at this time, I really feel like I am following this passion. Do you miss uh, being in the office, you know, and and, and working with with patients and, and things like that? I do. There's really very little that could be more rewarding than working with children and working with families and having a great rapport with them. And taking part in something that's one of the most intimate experiences of their lives is when their child is sick and when they're really worried. I mean, that's a that's a very stressful time for families. And to be able to guide them through that is incredibly rewarding and uh, and humbling. At the same time, it's hard because we all have, you know, multiple passions and different things that we want to do. So my challenge right now is finding a balance where I can have both of those things in my in my life and feel the, the success of both those careers. That was author Nadia Hashimi talking with Jonathan Wilson. Her novel, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, is now out in paperback. You can hear her talk more about the Afghan tradition that inspired the novel and hear her read an excerpt on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Hans Anderson, Lauren Landau, Tara Boyle, and Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. John Hines produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. You can find info about all the music we use at metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also find a link to our free weekly podcast. Or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll explore why the homeless rate is growing in Washington, D.C., even as it drops in other cities. We'll look at a kind of hidden homelessness in our local Latino community, and we'll hear about ways to tackle the problem. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.